0: The abortion debate has reached a critical point in the United States, with leaked documents suggesting that the Supreme Court will soon overturn Roe v. Wade, reversing 50 years of established abortion rights precedent. The majority of Americans think that women should have a right to an abortion. However, a large minority of residents feel otherwise and have been savvy about getting their voices heard. The major driver of abortion attitudes turns out to be religion. How does religion shape the discussion about abortion worldwide? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Amy Adamchik, who is Professor of Sociology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and in the Ph.D. programs in Sociology and in Criminal Justice at the CUNY Graduate Center. Her work addresses the role of religion in societies around the world, especially with regard to issues of sexuality. Her recent book, "Handing Down the Faith: How Parents Pass Their Religion On to the Next Generation," which is co-authored with Christian Smith of Notre Dame, won the Book of the Year Award from Christianity Today in the Marriage and Family category. Thanks so much for being with us today, Amy Adamchik.
1: Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Great to have you. So. We decided to do this interview after I heard a recent talk of yours on religion and attitudes uh, towards abortion, uh, the issue with which I began the introduction, uh, and how that varies across countries, especially in the United States, where it's particularly salient. Can you tell us more about what you found and how do people in other parts of the world think about this controversial issue of abortion?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the research that you heard about uh, included information from over 80 nations across the world and about 200,000 people. So it was really representative of how the world views this issue. And the data were taken from the real value surveys, which uh, many researchers use all over the world. Um, the research was initially published in the European Sociological Review, and I'm currently working on a book on the same topic uh, that explains the explores the findings more in depth. Um, that book is also going to include about 40 interviews, which are which were done in the United States and China. China, as well as a large newspaper analysis. So the findings were exciting for me. I'm, I was trained as a sociologist of religion, and I do a lot of this international work. And what I found was that, perhaps not surprising, personal religious beliefs, the extent to which people say that religion is important in their lives, had a very important role in shaping how they viewed this issue. Now, we know that to be the case in the United States, but what was really exciting about these findings is that I had information from individuals from a wide range of different religions and from a wide range of different countries across the world. Now, what's somewhat surprising that I found in this work is that religious affiliation, for the most part, didn't seem to make much of a difference. So there were not large differences between, say, Muslims and Catholics, or Catholics and Protestants, or Protestants and Buddhists. And that's very um, interesting as well. Now, in the United States, we have found that conservative Protestants tend to be particularly opposed to abortion, as well as Latino Catholics. The research that I did, did not, unfortunately, did not have information necessarily about conservative Protestants, nor could it break down differences across different Muslim groups, for example. But if you were to look just generally across the five major religions in the world, I found very, very few differences. So at the individual level, what really matters, John, is personal religious beliefs, whatever those beliefs are. So all of the major religions have something to say about abortion or... Their texts have been interpreted by their religious leaders as having something to say about abortion. So if everybody has something to say about abortion, something to say about how abortion is problematic, then what really matters is strength of religious belief, not necessarily religious affiliation. So that's what I found at the individual level. But at the country level, I also found some really interesting things. So one of the things my analysis was able to do is to sort out how the surrounding religious context within a country shaped individuals' attitudes. So we know that personal religious beliefs matter. But what about if you're living in a country that has very high levels of religious belief? Uh, The United States has historically had relatively high levels of religious belief, given its high level of economic development. So say you're living in the United States and you're not religious at all. All right. Does religion have a role in how you view abortion? My research strongly suggests that it does, that even if you're not feeling that religion is important in your life or you affiliate with, you know, you say you're, you're not religious at all, if you live in a more religious country where the people around you say that religion is important, it appears that that trickles down to affect your personal attitudes about abortion. So then the question is, is well, where is this coming from? Well, there are a lot of places that your views might be shaped by uh, religion within the country that you live. So, for example, the laws um, in within a country, when, when there's a lot of very religious people, um, they can shape the laws and then the laws are going to influence how you see this issue. But also informal relationships, the person you meet at the gas station, um, you know, the friends of your parents, maybe the parents of your boyfriend, um, even if you don't care about, um, you know, religion, Um, if you start talking with these other people about how they view abortion, you might feel inclined to go along with what they're thinking and with what they're saying, because you care about them. That's a process called social control.
0: So this is very interesting. And um, I mean, particularly on the abortion question. But as you know, uh, you know, you sort of raised this at least indirectly now. I, as you know, I have a long-standing interest in this business about American exceptionalism. And, you know, what you've just described would seem to, you know, characterize in many ways the American story. Uh, but you noted that, you know, in comparison to... Uh, relatively wealthy countries, the United States still stands out, even despite, I suppose one might say, the, so, the so-called rise of the religious nuns, that is the increasing number of people who claim no religious affiliation. Uh, we still stand out as a kind of unusually religious country. Can, can you talk about like where that came from and where it stands now, as I say, particularly given the background about the decline or the rise of the religious nuns.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right, John. Um, historically, the United States has been seen as particularly religious. Um, we've often been called an exception. And even today with you know the declines in the proportion of people in the US who are saying that they are not religious, um, or excuse me, the, the increases in the proportion of the of people in the U.S. who say they're religious, um, we're still an exception. Uh, So early sociologists thought that the reason for these, you know, for the religious decline across the world in wealthier nations was related to economic development. And so the basic idea here is that as countries become wealthier, as they get past sort of their social insecurities related to survival, and they start to focus on things like self expression and individualism, they um, give up religion. They don't need it anymore. It's not useful to them. And the early social scientists that I'm talking about include people like Durkheim, Weber, Marx, and they were working in Europe. And this is exactly what was happening in Europe. Europe was uh, developing, you know, really quite rapidly. And what they were finding is that there were these big declines in religion. And so the assumption was, is that, well, as countries get richer, you know, just wait for them to get richer. As they get richer and they no longer have these concerns, then they're all going to have lower levels of religious belief. It'll just happen naturally. Well, what happened in the United States is, is, is different from that. So the United States is often understood as an exception because that's not what happened here. We held on to relatively high levels of religious belief even as we, um, you know, became richer and more democratic and, you know, gave up our concerns about, you know, survival related issues. Now, if you look across the world, there's a lot of other countries that look more like the United States, not in Europe. But if you're to look in Africa, for example, if you look at, you know, the former the countries from the former Soviet Union, um, you're going to find that in some cases, religious belief has actually increased. If you're talking about the Soviet Union, when communism ended, um, religious levels, religious belief went up. If you look in Africa, where you can find that even in countries that are getting wealthier, religious belief, you know, remains relatively high. So then the question is, is what is going on here? Is the U.S. really an exception or did some of the early social scientists get this wrong? So I'm a little I'm a fan of um, economic theories about religion. I find some of those ideas fairly useful. Uh, so what are those ideas? Well, a lot of this work originated with someone named Roger Finke, um, Larry Iannacone, Rodney Stark. They all proposed a market-based approach to understanding why religion remains relatively strong in the U.S. and in many other countries. And the basic idea here was that um, it, Europe subsidized many of its churches. And in doing that, they made the churches a little bit lazy and they made their leaders a little bit lazy. And um, their leaders were not out there hustling to attract churchgoers. And they weren't putting out an interesting product, right? This is very market-based, very capitalistic perspective. In the U.S., things were different. The government did not subsidize religion. So if you were a religious leader, You had to get out there and hustle and you had to put forth an interesting product. And so you would, you would come up with really great music. You would come up with interesting spaces. Um, You had to run the whole thing by yourself. So you would, er, er, you know, urge people to be, uh, you know, dedicated and come in and do all of this volunteering because there was no money. Uh, There was nothing else that, you know, was going to help you. You had to do it yourself. And, And as people became more committed to, their churches, um they tend to feel better they they liked what they saw. they tended to feel like, "Hey, man, I'm really dedicating a lot to this. I bet I am going to go to heaven and so some of these market based approaches um made a lot of sense, and they were especially useful because they could be tested. That was the challenge with um, theories of secularization is that you just sort of needed to wait long enough and then the country would be rich enough, and then you know there'd be no more religious belief. but you couldn't test it. there's no like well how do you how do you prove that that's wrong? Well, the economic based arguments you could test. And so we have found a lot of support for that. But kind of going back to the point that you made, John, um, things are changing in the United States. And so maybe some of these market based approaches aren't what we always thought they were. Um, and there has in fact been an increase in nuns, especially over the last 20 years. All that said, America is still very, very religious, especially when you compare it to other, you know, economically developed nations, um, most of which are, are over. In, if you if you talk about the global north or you're talking about Europe, for example.
0: Right. I mean, this is all interesting, not least because uh, we had a conversation a few weeks back with Ebenezer Obadare of um, the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's been focusing a lot on Pentecostalism in Nigeria, where he's from, and, and in Africa more generally. And, you know, that seems certainly to be one of the forces that's keeping Africa you know, religious, even as it gets, you know, wealthier and and more sort of modernized and that sort of thing. But in any case, uh, I want to get back to, you know, our uh, conversations about, uh, people's views of certain social practices. And, you know, in addition to all the writing you've been doing about abortion, uh, you've also written extensively about views about homosexuality, which is, of course, you know, obviously a kind of hot button issue, particularly on the right in the United States these days, but also in places like Hungary, uh, and other places that are not so enthusiastic about, you know, accepting Homosexuality as a practice in in social life. And so I wonder what you could tell us about your research on, you know, religious views uh, and and how they shape attitudes towards uh, homosexuality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So some of the same forces that shape uh, disapproval of abortion also shape disapproval of uh, you know, LGBTQs or same-sex relationships. Um, so that includes personal religious beliefs and also overall levels of religiosity within the country. But the difference between uh, views about abortion and views about homosexuality is that with regards to views about homosexuality, what we find is that nations that are dominated by Islam tend to have um, much more opposition to homosexuality than those that are dominated by say mainline Protestant faiths or either Catholicism. We also find that countries, and and this makes sense definitely in Africa, um, that have uh, very strong histories of conservative Protestant or evangelical Protestant or Pentecostal religious faiths They, too, tend to be more opposed uh, to homosexuality. And so this is where you end up getting these cases where, you know, people can be killed for, you know, being found out to have a same sex um, relationship in Africa. There's a there's a lot of that. Um, Now, with regards to abortion, uh, what we find um, and and you'd be the first to say this, the Catholic Church has been relatively friendly um, with regards to homosexuality, but not abortion. So the Catholic Church has really um, taken on the abortion concern as a a pivotal issue. And in my research on abortion, what I find is the proportion Catholic, not Catholic affiliation, but the proportion Catholic within a country does have a role to play in shaping how people view the abortion issue. Namely, people living in nations with a high proportion of Catholics um, tend to be more opposed uh, to abortion. And I think that makes sense because the Catholic Church has really pulled on the abortion issue as key. It hasn't done that so much much with regards to LGBTQs. In fact, there have been some comments that the Catholic Church might be getting more and more liberal on the LGBTQ issue. Certainly, Pope Francis has suggested that, and we see that coming up. Um, so that that those are some of the similarities and differences with regards to those issues.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, uh, if we think of these both as you know, as a friend of mine has once put it, pelvic issues, that is to say, issues revolving around human life and sexuality. Um, you know, these two issues tend to fall in the same camp, sort of as between liberals and conservatives in the US. But the Catholic Church seems to see this differently, as you've pointed out. I mean, there, and, you know, Francis, as you say, has been particularly hands-off, shall we say, about homosexuality. Who am I to judge, he says, um, if they seek God or I've forgotten exactly what he said, but something along those lines. And But as far as for abortion, you know, it's much more uh, unambiguously hostile. You know, well, what? How, where do you think that comes from? What's that about?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and let me just, just to speak even further to your point, at least within the United States, John, if we go back 20 years, the, um the change in views about homosexuality are incredible. I mean, the proportion of people who, who were opposed to LGBTQs, even just 20 years ago was massive. And today, it is a very small proportion of people. So things change very, very rapidly in 20 years. So then the question is, is what happened with abortion? well, John, almost nothing has changed. People are where they were 20 years ago. Even if you go back to even the 1970s, Roe v. Wade, people are very similar, at least in the United States, with regards to that issue. So in, in some cases, there are some similarities with these things, but in some cases, there are some real differences. I think with regards to, Um, LGBTQs, the coming out movement was pivotal, not just pivotal in the United States, but also in other countries. Um, In my book on views about LGBTQs, I spent a lot of time in Taiwan. I was trying to understand at the time why the Taiwanese were so opposed when they had very high levels of economic development, high levels of democracy, and they weren't dominated by Christian or Muslim faiths. And one of the things um, that I found was that a lot of people still had at the time that I was doing the research, a lot of people still had not come out. But over time, more and more people have come out in Taiwan. And lo and behold, we also see that it is the first um, I think it's the first Asian nation to allow for same sex relationships. So I think the coming out movement um, really had a big impact. It certainly had a huge impact here in the United States as celebrities were coming out, as individuals were coming out. Suddenly, you know, you have a gay cousin. It's hard to, you know, hate gay people when you have a gay cousin um, because that's in your family. This is some, somebody that you know, this is something that you carry about. If we think about abortion, and I, I would absolutely not advocate this. I think that would be hugely problematic. But a lot of people, a lot of women get abortions. Let's be clear about that. Many, many, many women get abortions. It's, it's, it's a very high uh, proportion of women in the United States. It's a minority, but it is there. Um, but people don't talk about it. Women don't talk about it. This is a, um, a shameful topic. This is a topic you don't discuss. You don't, you don't bring up. You try to hide. Um, in some ways, it's a little bit like being LGBTQ was many, many, many years ago. Um but uh in the US I think a lot of people think they don't know anybody who got an abortion and women don't come out and say that they have and again I'm I'm not necessarily advocating that but I think there is a disconnect between um the behavior and um how people view it in a way that there is less and less of a disconnect between LGBTQs and the public opinion on the topic
0: Interesting. I mean, as you may know, uh, we had a conversation last week with uh, Adrian Coman, who works in LGBTQ rights, you know, human rights uh, activism. And, uh, you know, he made this point as well. I mean, I was sort of saying, you know, the string of acronyms (laughs) is getting increasingly long and confusing to the untrained (laughs) eye, you know. And so I wondered whether that's You know necessarily a great idea and whether we shouldn't just emphasize you know right to privacy and let people do or kind of be i mean do whatever they want and what they are is maybe a separate question but you know you've sort of emphasized the centrality of the coming out uh whatever phenomenon as you know decisive in promoting acceptance of uh you know, these kinds of uh, relationships. So
1: yeah, yeah, but uh, I'll, I'll just be add curious what you would yeah. say about that. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, it's a really interesting point, especially the, the acronym. Um, when I was writing my book in 2017, so not that, not that long ago, it, it was published in 2017. So I was writing it right before then. Um, the name of the book includes the term homosexuality. John, if I was going to publish this book today, I would not use that term. Now, at the, at the time, and even today, the reason I use the term is because in the main source of data, which was the real value survey, that's what they ask people. How do you view homosexuality? And if you leave the United States, this is the term people use. So if I were to go to Africa and ask you know, individuals about what do you think of transgender individuals, they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? So, you know, it has been such a challenge um, within the LGBTQ literature and the differences between countries, but also the differences over time. So these survey data from the World Value Survey, which ask about homosexuality, um, you know, you don't want to change the question now because then you don't know if you find differences. You don't know if the differences are because the question changed or because people actually changed their views. Um, but And in addition, if you're doing a cross-national survey, you've got to use a term that everyone at least has some understanding of um but things have changed so quickly that um even academics you know we're you know we're, we're struggling to keep up with well how do we refer to this or how do we understand this especially when you're doing it in the international context so i i, I actually think it's a really um great point and i'm doing my best to, to keep up with acronyms and so forth but it will be really interesting in about 20 years if we just start using terms like non-binary or if there's you know i don't know um other terms that kind of can capture that whole group, that whole right. whole group.
0: So. Right, indeed. I mean, it seems to me that is unavoidably in a way where things must be going, that it's just going to be too complicated. <laughs> yeah. and And, you know, people just won't know what all these acronyms mean. So we need to figure out some way of talking about whatever, non-standard or non something so sexualities. I, I don't know exactly. But the question of why this is ha- all happening so quickly. I mean, gay marriage was unacceptable 20 years ago. Now it's, I mean, it's not everywhere. And there are, I suppose, places that are trying to roll it back. But, you know, it's become, as you say, pretty widely accepted. I mean, to me, maybe the answer to that is that it's, in a certain way, it's a straightforward rights question you know everybody gets to marry why you know this sexual minority if you like uh why can't they do that too
1: yeah.
0: and uh but but nonetheless i mean as you say about these other issues this is all happening so fast i mean why mm-hmm. do you think that's the case
1: yeah yeah no so one of the things i was able to do in a book and i've also reported this in some other papers is look at with regards to views about lgbtqs um is You know, so there's two ways that attitudes change. So on the one hand, you can have population turnover. So, um, usually the way this works is that older people die and they're replaced by younger people. And younger people tend to be more liberal because they're, you know, growing up in a different type of world. And so each new generation tends to be a little bit more liberal than the past. And so, you know, through um, population turnover, um, attitudes can very slowly change. The alternative process is when something happens and everybody within the society changes their views. Well, with regards to LGBTQs, attitudes changed so quickly that it couldn't have been because of population turnover. Everybody, grandma changed her views, the child changed their views, mom changed her views, cousin Susie changed her views, everybody changed their views. Um, John, if I had to pick one thing, what I would say happened was I think the coming out movement was incredibly successful. And it came... um, I don't want to say on the heels because it came at the same time, but I think AIDS was devastating in the 1980s to this community. And at the same time, it gave them a platform and it gave them power. Um, it gave them, a belief in themselves, um, a sense that they had to do something, and they did because they couldn't. They, you know, this population couldn't get the drugs, they couldn't get the resources, they couldn't get what they needed uh, to survive, and so it 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 really pushed them to organize, and then um, push people, you know, to come on out. Which in some parts of the world, of course, would get you killed, but in the U.S., as many, many, many people continued to do it, it had a big
0: change. Right, fascinating. So. I guess now I want to turn to your recent book with uh, Chris Smith, Christian Smith. Um, The title is... handing down the faith, how parents pass their religion on to the next generation. And as we were discussing before we came on the air, um, you know, this is a fascinating question uh, as, you know, a lapsed Catholic who didn't uh, give his kids really much by way of religious education. I feel in some ways I've fallen down on the job. I mean, how are they going to understand all these people who are talking about this book called the Bible and things like that? But um, in any case, you know, I, I guess uh, it'd be interesting to have you just say, you know, what's kind of the thesis of the book and, um, you know, how do families, uh, you know, what what happens in this process? I mean, what happened to me? Uh, you know, <laughs> interesting, not that you know that specifically, but you probably have a sense of the trajectory that I, you know, went down so that, you know, I didn't really pass this on to my kids. So anyway, curious to hear what the book is really all about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this was a really fun project. So what we did is we had a team of researchers conduct about 200 interviews across the United States. Actually, I think it was about 220. And John, you'll know, 220 interviews is a lot of interviews. These aren't surveys. These are like, you know one, two, three, four hour long interviews. And we interviewed people all over the United States from all different kinds of religions. So we interviewed Muslims, we interviewed Buzis, we interviewed Hindus, we interviewed Mormons, we can interview conservative Protestants. We also interviewed Latino Catholics. So we had um, researchers on the team who could speak Spanish and spent a lot of time in uh, the Southern part of the United States doing these interviews. And we combined that information with a bunch of survey data that's already out there. So we could see kind of what is it that shapes the likelihood that uh, young people will go on and, and, you know, have religious faith and maybe can add some insight into what happened to John's children um, and why are they not religious. Um, so the book, the book, very, very interesting. So it's out now. Um, it, it's it has a lot of information in it. But I will say this, if, if you are a parent and you're thinking about, well, how do, how do successful parents pass on religious faith to their children? What, what is going on there? One of the things that we found, I'll talk about two things, but one of the things that we found is that authoritative parenting was especially important for transmitting religious belief. So what is authoritative parenting? Well, first, it's the idea that um, you consistently hold children to clear and demanding expectations, that there are standards, that there are boundaries about what is and is not acceptable. And at the same time, um, you give your children this abundance of warmth and support and expressive care. And it's the combination of these two things, of clear expectations and boundaries, filled with warmth, that um, then encourage parents who are religious, and John, you have to be religious. (laughs) The parents themselves have to be religious in order to pass on religious belief for the most part. Um, It's this combination of factors that tend to lead the children to, um, it, you know, follow religion later in life. And so the idea here is that children need to know that their parents care very much for them, but at the same time, they hold high standards for them. Um, they need to know that even if they fail in, a, a, you know, obtaining these high standards, their parents are going to, you know, go on to love them and care about them. The idea here is that the, the children like their parents, that um, they understand what it is they need to do and that they want to do things that are similar to what their parents are doing. So if you're a religious parent and you want to pass on your on your religion, you know, and I, I hopefully a lot of parents try to engage in this type of parenting, but many parents don't. And we certainly saw that in the data. So we had, you know, the authoritarian parenting style where there's just, you know, very demanding, but not as much warmth and love. Maybe many of us were raised with that style. There's the permissive parent. These are the parents who are all about affection and empathy, but there's no boundaries. There's not a lot of standards. The children aren't sure what to do. It's very, very. Permissive, We have disengaged parents, unfortunately, who who really can't give their children much warmth and understanding. At the same time, they don't know their children's, you know, the names of their children's friends. Um, And, you know, that doesn't do much for successfully passing on religion. And so obviously, parents who are religious, who want to pass on their religion, when you have this parenting style, um, that helps. The other piece of it um, is that we found that the most you know, successful parents really um, encourage two-way conversations. Um, and so what does this mean? Well, a lot of us were sort of raised with you know, parents um, who may have uh, you know, uh, preached to us or given us kind of a one-sided conversation about religion, or when we asked about various things, they would try to shut you down and say, oh, do, you know, why, why would you challenge What God says? What do you mean? You know, or if you say, well, you know, I don't understand. You know, what is the Trinity or what is the Holy Spirit? Parents would just give them a lecture and then leave it at that. But maybe the kids had more questions. And so, one of the successful things that we found that parents who wanted to transmit religious belief to their children did is it would have these two-way conversations. And so that they would allow the children to ask questions. They would allow the children to kind of bring in their own ideas and to raise issues. But again, this only works. I mean. Parents, for the most part, parents wanted to pass on the level of religious belief that they had. So often it was kind of like they didn't want their children to be more religious than them. They didn't want their children to be less religious than them. They sort of wanted their children to be like them. And so one way they did that is through this, you know, various parenting styles. So they, they tended to, like, if we call success what the parents were, then that's what we found. But then also these two-way conversations were really important so that children could feel comfortable kind of challenging their mom and dad or, or seeking out, you know, answers in a way that, you know, that, that would make them comfortable. There's a lot more in the book, John, but I'll, 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 give, I'll give you just that for now.
0: So that's really fascinating. And it's interesting, because my understanding had been that religion was successfully transmitted by parents who kind of, you know, maybe sort of shoved it down their kids throats. And maybe it maybe I misunderstood that literature. But what you're saying, you seem to be me to be saying is that it happens when there's a more, you know, mutual kind of process of understanding about why the parents would want the children to, you know, be religious. Yeah, so absolutely. is that is that i mean it, it's interesting in the sense that the world, whole world is getting more educated and and typically more educated people i think demand you know, a give and take about how they should think about things, not, you know, being told to think this or that. So maybe I misunderstood the uh, the old, the older, you know, work and the older arguments about this. But it sounds like, you know, what you're saying is really, it's always been a kind of communicative process, so to speak. It's not something that you just shove down your kid's throat and successfully transmit the, you know, the parents' religiosity.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, John. You're, you're totally nailing it. And, and I'll just add to it. One of the interesting things I, I wrote, um, we divided up the chapter, so we each wrote half. But one of the chapters I spent a lot of time on was the role of congregations and shaping, um, how parents, uh, transmit religious belief. And there was a very interesting finding, which is, um, in, throughout our interviews, we always ask parents, what is the role of the congregation? What is the role of the church? Like, what, what do they give you? What do they help you with? Do you see them as primarily pass, you know, passing on religion to your children? And not one parent said that they saw the church or their congregation as primarily responsible for passing on religion. And again, I think that's a, difference from what you might have guessed even 40 years ago, um, where you kind of drop your kid off at Sunday school and say, okay, go get go get what you need. And then, you know, I'll come pick you up in an hour or two. Um, we didn't see any of that. I mean, these parents are involved. And um, if you think about it, today's parents spend more time uh, with their children than they did 40 years ago. So these these parents want to do everything. They want to. They don't leave anything to anyone else, and they're spending gobs of time with them. They're taking them to all these activities, all these events. I mean, you better damn well be sure they are involved in how religion gets passed on. And so then the question for congregations was sort of like, well, what can they do to help parents? And and that's what that chapter ended up being about. Is like, well, what what do congregations provide if parents are seeing themselves as primarily responsible, how do congregations act as helpmates? And there were a lot of things that congregations could do. I mean, one of the things that congregations could do is that they could provide activities that their kid wanted to engage in. And a a lot of congregations don't do that. But you had to make it fun for the kids because otherwise the kids didn't want to go. And congregations could do things like, um, you know, have some interesting Sunday school so that the parents had like something to ask the kids about as they are picking them up you know from th- those activities so that they would give them some sort of conversational starters or they could, parents could tell the kids like hey I'm, we're gonna talk about this when you get back so make sure you think about you know what's happening and what's you know be instead um congregations could um provide older individuals who could look out for their kids that was that was really useful congregations could buy, re, you know help parents um funnel children into religious groups so again that was that was really important because you could kind of then you know set your kid up with other friends you know from parents who who have similar religious beliefs. And so, yeah, a lot has changed um, in how we think about these issues and how parents are thinking about these issues.
0: Interesting. I mean, so in, in an earlier part of one of your answers, you know, you talked about what basically we call the secularization thesis, right? The idea that societies become more modern, they become wealthier, people are more secure, they don't feel the need for religion anymore. And as you well know, that Thesis uh, has been, you know, challenged rather dramatically. I would say in recent years, and so I guess I'd be interested, just kind of, to wrap things up in your take on, you know, how successful are parents around the world going to be in transmitting their religiosity to their, you know, to their offspring to their kids, and what does this kind of portend for the? Possible. I mean, there's lots of debate about the secularization thesis, but, you know, what does this portend for the secularization of the world or otherwise?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, great questions. Uh, I mean, I think if parents really want to pass on their religion, They're going to be able to do it. Um, You know, in our research, we found that um, parents were the number one force in children's lives. You might think it's peers or you might think it's the school, but it was the parents. Um, They have just an incredibly powerful role. Maybe not every single parent has an incredibly powerful role for every single child. But in general, if you look across all of them, um, parents you know, have a lot of um, power to um, determine what they're going to expose their kids to. And often the kids wanted the exposure, like for the kids who were religious, they, they, I mean, they wanted to know about religion, they wanted to be a part of it and all that. So I mean, I think for the parents who want to pass this on I think that that is there um uh, you know I think parents today want at least in the United States they want to be liked they want to um we didn't have any parents who who said oh if my kid doesn't belong to the same religion as me I'm going to disown them we, there was none of that like it's it's a, it's a kind of a different era and for parents who were in, in religious faith like Islam in the United States they were especially concerned about their kid you know being too extreme they just wanted them to have a good life i mean that's often what you know kind of parents were looking for so um i think you know, what all of this uh, sort of means for, you know, the secularization thesis is that I, I don't think this is just obviously, I, I I agree with you, John, like this, this economic development. I, I mean, it's not that I mean, those things do sometimes work together. But I think there's a, a lot more um, going on there. I think for parents who want to pass on religion, they, they're going to be able to do it. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, I was a little I grew up religious, my parents were very religious, I was a little surprised at how many parents Really just wanted to pass on lukewarm religious beliefs there, there wasn't this um, sense of like oh you know militantly you know trying to ingrain religion into their children, even if they were going to do it in a delicate manner with two- way conversations and all that. there wasn't that much of it. so parents, at least in the United States today are just passing on as much as they want to, not too much, not too little. They want their kids to have a good life um, and having a good life means having some uh, you know religion uh, toolkit. Uh, you know, that can help them cope and help them be happier people. Uh, But it means not too much religion, because then maybe that's going to be a problem. So um, hopefully I've answered at least pieces of your question, John. These are things I'm going to have to think more about too, as, as things go
0: forward. Well, thanks very much. I mean, it's been a fascinating conversation. You're doing lots of really interesting work. Uh, but we're out of time for today. I want to thank Amy Adamchik of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice for sharing her insights about the role of religion in shaping attitudes towards abortion and all kinds of other things. Uh, and as I, I do think, and I suspect you agree that this is a topic that maybe doesn't get enough attention in uh, contemporary social science. In any case, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Nena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons you. Mm-hmm.